This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. Today, we're in the London office of Goldman Sachs, and we're joined by Kevin Daly, who is the co-head of Central and Eastern Europe, Middle East, and Africa, or SEMIA, I'm going to call it, economics within global macro research. And that's our focus today, SEMIA, from what's been driving the weakness in these emerging markets, when conditions are likely to bottom out, and what's next for growth and inflation. Kevin, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. So, Kevin, we'll get to the SEMIA region specifically a bit later on, but let's just start with the big picture on emerging markets. Last year, 2018, was a pretty tough year for emerging market economies and for the markets as well. Why do you think that was the case? For us, there is four factors that drove the slowdown in EM economies last year. The first was the slowdown in growth in developed economies. That matters crucially for external demand for EM. So EMs export a lot of goods and services to developed economies. So when developed economies slow, that has a negative impact on EM. And that certainly happened last year. The second is that there was a big tightening in global and EM financial conditions driven by a reappraisal of U.S. rate prospects. So when people expect higher U.S. rates and higher developed economy rates in general, that tends to set the funding availability for EM economies. So that tightening in U.S. conditions in particular had an important negative drag through the course of 2018 on EM economies. The third factor is oil prices. You saw a big rise in oil prices through the course of 2018, at least up by 30% to the period to October. That has a big impact on consumer abilities to spend, in, in particular household finances. And last, the tariffs and the risk of a trade war. This is a cloud that hung over EM growth increasingly through the year and still hangs over growth to some degree now. If those were the key four factors shaping performance of EM economies last year, How do you see things developing right now? The picture shifted somewhat. Yeah, I think it has. Much as you think of those, if you focus in particular on the tightening in financial conditions, that's now gone into reverse, pretty much. There's been a big reappraisal of U.S. rate prospects. That has led to easier monetary policy prospects globally, and on the back of that, stronger equity prices. So there's been a re-easing, if I can put it that way, in global financial conditions. Secondly, oil prices have fallen from that mid-October peak by around 25%, even though they've risen a little bit recently, they're still 25% lower. So with the reversal of at least two of the factors that drove the slowdown last year, we think there's going to be a stabilization in global and EM growth this year and subsequently a recovery, although there'll be lags, it'll be a gradual recovery in our view. Given that, when do you think emerging market financial conditions will bottom out? Or have they bottomed out? There's almost like a ripple effect from the U.S. of these things. You've seen the Fed has changed direction in terms of its projected tightening. U.S. yields have fallen. And now you're seeing other central banks around the world respond to that. The tone of the ECB, for instance, in Europe has turned easier. But you're seeing it from other EM central banks now as well, is that that's contributing to an easing financial conditions. And bear in mind is that we've had the best year in beginning of global equities start this year than in any year since 1991. So that is contributing to an ongoing easing in both global and EM financial conditions. What's the evidence of stabilization in emerging markets as you look across the broad set of data? I suppose the good thing is that it's not just our forecasting tools that are telling us we expect to see some stabilization and then recovery in EM growth. You're actually now already seeing it in the data. Let's focus first on outside of China. So EM excluding China, 
you've seen from around September, October onwards, roughly a 1% annualised increase in growth rates measured by our current activity indicator. So there has been already beginnings of recovery from the lows posted in September, October last year. In China, it's more tentative coming through, but we are seeing the beginnings of that as well. So there is some evidence in EM data of, of a recovery. You mentioned that the emerging market fixed income markets have been benefiting from a more dovish tone out of the U.S. Fed, also lower inflation, somewhat softer global growth backdrop. Will those conditions continue, and what can we expect from EM bonds? We think they will. There's two elements to that. One is whether monetary policy in the U.S. and other developed economies provides an easy back set, if I can put it that way, for EM economies, and I think that is more the case now than it was in 2018. But second and more fundamentally is how does inflation in these economies perform? And that's where we think inflation will be pretty low in these economies. Why? Because as unlike a lot of DM economies, you have a lot of spare capacity. So there's still a lot of unused resources and that will tend to depress inflationary pressures going forward. And second, you've had this fall in oil price will contribute to lower headline inflation. And bear in mind, in, in EM economies, they tend to consume a lot of petrol and oil within their output. So actually, that has a commensurately bigger effect on their inflation rates than it does in developed economies. Let's get back to China. You specifically excluded it before. Talk about the role of China in all this. We were recently on this podcast talking about China's bumpy deceleration, factors that are driving the slowdown there. And just recently, it was announced that China's A shares were going to increase as a share of the global MSCI index, which should be a positive force for that market. What does that all mean for investors that are focused on EM and China particularly? Until very recently, the news has been more negative in China. Andrew Tilton and his team focus a lot on that, is that you've seen activity in China fall below 6% annualized on our CAIs. That's really a very weak level in the context of Chinese growth and has been a level which historically had prompted quite a significant response from the authorities there in terms of easier monetary and fiscal policy. Initially, that response appeared to be delayed. They're more circumspect about easing in that way today than perhaps they were in the past. But more recently, you have had evidence of them easing, and financial markets have responded to that very positively. What's more is that you are also seeing now the first signs of a recovery in Chinese data, where that recovery really began to be seen in September of October of last year for most EMs. It has only really begun to be seen in the last month or two in China. When you look ahead, what are some of the key upcoming events for investors in this space in emerging markets? Within the CMEA space, there's quite a lot of political events in the coming months. We have elections in South Africa in May, which will represent a key point where the relatively new Ramaphosa regime, if they succeed as we expect in getting through those elections, will be freer perhaps to implement economic reforms than they have been up until now. We have elections coming up in Israel, actually earlier than that at the beginning of April, which are still very uncertain. We have also elections in Turkey, local elections, which are a key focus for that market. And also the European elections in Central and Eastern Europe, which are seen as being a key barometer of the performance of populism in these economies. Let's get to Samia. You're especially focused on that space. Once again, Central and Eastern Europe, Middle East and Africa. That's an area that's experienced slower growth against 
backdrop of slower growth in the continent more broadly, but also some shocks in Turkey. Where are we now in the growth trajectory of that region? You're absolutely right, Jake. In addition to the global headwinds that we talked about, these four factors of slower DM growth, tighter financial conditions, higher oil prices and tariffs and the risk of a trade war. Within Simia, there were additional shocks for Turkey specifically because you know it had a very fragile balance of payment situation reflecting many years of overheating in that economy. Those imbalances really in this tougher environment were exposed. And so you had the Turkish lira fell 25 to 30% at one point during the course of the year. On our forecast, we expect the recovery in Turkey to be very slow. This is a balance sheet recession, which will be unwound in our minds relatively slowly. But nevertheless, we do seem to be past the worst point of Turkish growth. So looking at the outlook for Simia as a whole, we think that will contribute positively going forward. When we look around the world post-financial crisis, we really just haven't seen much inflation in developed economies or in most emerging economies. What's driving weak inflation in the emerging economies? In the longer span of time, actually one of the big changes that's taken place in the M and why investors are looking at it so much more than in the past and why they've really grown as markets relative to 10 and 20 years ago is you've seen this big increase in inflation targeting credibility over time. A lot of the reforms that you saw in developed economies that took place in the early 90s into the 2000s have, with a lag, begun to be introduced in the EMA economy as well. You have more independent central banks, more credible fiscal policy. And with that, over time, you have seen a convergence in inflation rates in EM economies down to DM levels. And this process of convergence has been underway for a period now of of 20, 30 years. So it's a very long-term process. Overlaying that process on a more short-term cyclical basis, you also have a lot of spare capacity in these economies, which is helping on a cyclical short-term basis to drive inflation lower at the moment. And that's why we believe that inflation in some of these high yielders, so South Africa, Russia, and also Turkey, we think inflation will fall quite sharply this year. Let's talk about other policy levers. What fiscal and monetary policy levers are governments pulling to try to get growth back up? It's important, the constraints in that area on monetary policy, we think that actually amongst all each of the high yielders that I mentioned in Simia, so we do expect easier monetary policy over time in, in South Africa, in Russia, in Turkey, but in Turkey not really until the second half of this year onwards. So we'd expect easier monetary policy in these economies. In terms of fiscal policy, I think the biggest changes we expect to take place in Russia. In recent years, a lot of the policy initiatives have been to try and protect and insulate the economy from the volatility of oil prices and financial market conditions. That deleveraging process now appears to be complete and fiscal policy looks likely to play a more important role in driving growth positively in the future. Getting back to Turkey, obviously the economy there suffered You sketched out some of the scenarios. Do you believe the sharpest part of the downturn has already occurred? In our central scenario, we do. You've seen inflation has begun to fall. The exchange rate has stabilized, actually recovered a bit from the lows in Q3 of last year. Inflation rates are falling quite sharply. However, Turkey is still in the midst of a very painful adjustment process. The worst part of the downturn took place in our minds in Q3 and Q4 of last year. But it's going to be a pretty slow and sluggish recovery going forward. The reason being is that there's still a lot of accumulated balance sheet adjustments in the banking sector in Turkey in particular that need to be worked out over time. 
even in a positive scenario, that is likely to act as a drag on growth for a prolonged period. But there are more negative outcomes as well. If, for instance, we had tighter financial conditions environment, which isn't our expectations globally going forward, but if that were to happen in the future, then actually that balance sheet adjustment could become more painful again for Turkey. So we see a slow recovery with still the risks of worse outcomes than that as well. Looking beyond the short term, the current cyclical weakness in these economies, What's your medium-term view for the region for growth and inflation in these SMEA countries? Pretty positive on the whole. These economies the last few years have had to deal with some issues that we talked about last year as well that have negatively affected growth on a cyclical basis. And for our mind, I think too many analysts out there and investors have inferred the long-term performance from the recent underperformance. Whereas, you know, in our mind, there's still a lot of productivity convergence that these economies can exhibit. And in most cases, their demographic situation looks significantly more positive than DM economies. So for us, these are still convergent stories, which hold the prospect of much stronger growth on average than DM economies, and also than their recent past. So we're positive for the long term. Another country you'd like to discuss specifically is Poland. Goldman's obviously been a big believer in the market. We've invested there and now have a big office in Warsaw. What does the Polish economy look like in this environment that we've discussed? Polish economy has been a great success story in recent years of the CE economies, of the Central and Eastern European economies. It has been a fantastic convergence story that has really benefited from EU membership. You've seen significant inward investment into these economies, including from Goldman Sachs as well, that has helped to raise productivity levels quite significantly within Poland. And in the near term, prospects there are quite good. It's had quite a big fiscal easing, so budgetary easing, in the last couple of years. There's more to come as we head into the elections this year as well. And household spending is benefiting in Poland from that. And what's interesting about it is that despite the evidence of weaker growth in the euro area recently, Polish economy has continued to perform very well. Kevin, you joined the firm in 2001. Your research has always gotten a lot of attention and praise. Over a decade ago, you wrote an interesting piece about a topic that still get a lot of interest today, if not more so. It was a paper called Gender Inequality, Growth, and Global Aging. Talk about that paper, what you wrote about then, and compare it to today's environment, particularly around gender. What the paper did, it contained three main innovations. One was it derived a simple yet hopefully intuitive means of estimating what is the impact of gender inequality on economic output. We showed specifically that closing the gap between male and female employment rates would boost U.S. GDP by around 10%, euro area GDP by as much as 13%, and Japanese GDP by 16%. So really quantifying not only does inequality have crucially important social effects, it has very big economic effects, which we could quantify. Second, we showed that contrary to the popular perception, Increasing female employment rates tend to increase rather than decrease fertility rates. And that's a counterintuitive conclusion. But the logic with it, and it's certainly clear in the data, but the intuition is in countries where women are essentially forced to choose between either having children or working, they tend to do less of both. So it tends to hurt both fertility rates 
and employment rates in those economies. And actually, if you do things like improve access to childcare and change tax incentives and so forth to encourage women to work, then you see both a rise in female employment and a rise in fertility so that it addresses not only the problems of gender inequality, but also addresses the issues of long-term demographics and pension sustainability as well. The last innovation of the piece was that we used age-specific employment rates to forecast how these issues of gender inequality were likely to evolve over time. The insight being that, obviously, if you have big wage gap, uh, big uh, gender employment gaps in older age cohorts, they may not necessarily be as big in younger age cohorts. And if we look forward and project as that ageing process takes place, we can have a view of how that gender gap is likely to evolve and it looked especially positive for Europe and we have actually seen quite a big rise in female employment in Europe over the last 10 years. How about the rest of the economy? Have you done a new deep dive in these topics yet? No, it's something I need to revisit in detail soon but what we tend to find is that actually Europe has made a lot of progress where there's still a huge amount of progress is now in the economies that are now covered is that EM economies tend to be poorly lacking relative to developed economies and on issues of gender inequalities. They have a lot of progress to be made there, but also with that, the potential for significant economic benefits from that progress. All right, Kevin, well, I look forward to reading the second edition. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Jake. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. Thanks for listening, and we hope you join us again next time. This podcast was recorded on March 6, 2019. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.